choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 288 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, re-entry. Then all three men will crawl into the command module through the tunnel, linking the two spacecraft and seal the hatches. Just before 12 noon, they'll jettison the limb, unhooking the docking latches and using the air pressure in the tunnel to pop the two spacecraft apart. An hour later, they're due to come sweeping in over the South Pacific, re-entry if all has gone well if the command module is working as well as its instruments seem to say it is waiting below the aircraft carrier Iwo Jima to recover them it'll all happen in a few hours and intensive simulations conducted by other astronauts on the ground these last few days say it should work and it has to re-entry can't be delayed once they've separated from the limb they have only a few hours of oxygen and power left in their damaged Apollo command module This is Jules Bergman at ABC Space Headquarters. With power-up finally completed, the lunar module Aquarius that had served the crew so well on this flight became expendable. At 140 hours and 52 minutes into the mission, less than two hours before splashdown, Apollo 13 was 16,000 miles from Earth and closing at more than 10,000 miles per hour. The Earth no longer appeared as a discrete, distant disk, surrounded on all sides by stars and space. It was now a vast blue mass, looming hugely ahead, spilling out of all three sides of the limb's triangular window frames. Staring through his porthole at the panorama outside, Lovell said, Fredo, it's about time we bail out of this ship. From behind him, Hayes said nothing. Fredo! Lovell turned to face his crewmate and was startled by what he saw. Hayes was a paler shade of gray than Lovell had seen him the entire trip, with his eyes closed and his arms folded tightly against his chest for warmth. He had begun to shake violently with chills. Fred! Lovell said, sounding more alarmed than he intended to. You look awful. Forget it. Hayes said with an unconvincing wave. Forget it. I'm fine. Yeah, Lovell said, drifting over to him. You look just terrific. Can you hold on for two more hours? I can hold out as long as I have to. Two hours, that's all you have to hang on for. And after that, we're floating in the South Pacific. We open the hatch, and it's 80 degrees outside. 80 degrees, Hayes repeated a little dreamily, and began to shiver again. Man, Lovell muttered, you're a mess. Moving up behind Hayes, the commander wrapped him in a bear hug to share his body heat. At first, the gesture seemed to accomplish nothing, but gradually, the trembling subsided. Fred, 
Why don't you get upstairs and help Jack out? Lovell said. I'll finish up here. Hayes nodded and prepared to float up the tunnel. But before he did, he stopped and took a long look around Aquarius's cockpit. Impulsively, he pushed back toward his station. Attached to the wall was a large screen of fabric netting used to prevent small items from floating behind the instrument panel. Hayes grabbed hold of the netting and gave it a sharp pull. It tore free with a ripping sound. Souvenir, he said with a shrug, wadding the netting into a ball and stuffing it into his pocket. Lovell was now alone in the lunar module. He also gave it a good look. The debris of four days of close quarters living was collected in a cluttered cockpit. Now Aquarius looked more like a garbage scow than the intrepid moonship it had been on Monday. Lovell waded through the scraps of paper and rubbish and moved back toward his window. Before he could leave, he had one more job, steering the twin vehicles to the attitude Jerry Bostick had specified so the limb, with its nuclear cargo, would drop into the deep water off New Zealand. Lovell took the attitude control for the last time and pushed it to the side. The ship yawed slightly, jostling some of the floating paper. Without the mass of the service module skewing the center of gravity so badly, Aquarius was far more maneuverable, much closer to the limb simulators in Houston and Florida that Lovell had been conditioned to fly. With a few practiced adjustments, he moved the lander to the proper position, then called to the ground. Okay, uh, Houston Aquarius, I'm at the left step attitude and I'm planning on bailing out. Okay, I, I can't, can't think of a better idea, Jim. Lovell finished configuring the limb switches and systems and then, like Hayes, looked around for a souvenir. Reaching to the top of his window, he grabbed the optical sight and gave it a twist. It unscrewed easily and Lovell pocketed it. Looking toward the stowage area at the back of the cockpit, he found the helmet he would have worn on the surface of the moon. He grabbed that as well. Finally, he turned to another cabinet and retrieved the plaque he and Hayes would have clamped to the limb's front leg once they had emerged from the lander and begun to explore. Lovell took his items and sprang up the tunnel into Odyssey's lower equipment bay. He placed his souvenirs in a storage cabinet and moved in the direction of the couches. Instinctively, he moved toward the left-hand station, but when he shimmied out of the equipment bay, he discovered that Swigert had claimed his left-hand spot. It was customary during the descent and re-entry phase of a lunar mission for a commander to relinquish his seat to his command module pilot. During a flight in which so many of the critical moments belonged to the commander and the limb pilot, the man in the center couch was sometimes overlooked. Re-entry, however, when the limb that had taken his shipmates to the surface of the moon was nothing but a jettisoned memory, was essentially a command module pilot's operation, and as a gesture of respect for both his competence as a flyer and the thankless job he had performed so far, he was usually allowed to bring the ship in for its landing. Now as re-entry approached, and the commander of this mission approached his familiar station, he had to switch course and move back to a less familiar one. Reporting aboard, Skipper, 
Lovell said to Swigert. Aye, aye, Swigert answered. Lovell donned his headset and nodded, then Swigert signed on the air. Okay, we're ready to proceed with hatch closeout. Okay, uh, did Jim get the film out of Aquarius? Yeah, we, uh, you mean the, the film we took this morning? That's affirmed. Yes, we've transferred that. Okay, good deal. Uh, Jack, uh, let me mention something about the uh, the hatch integrity check. You're going to vent the tunnel until you get a 3 PSI Delta P. That should take 9 or 10 minutes, and it's our uh, firm feeling that you don't have to wait another 10 minutes after that uh, for a leak check. If it, if it holds pressure for a minute or so, or even... You know you've got a good hatch, over. Okay, copy that. Okay. Lovell indicated to Swigert that he would take care of the hatches. Lovell first entered the tunnel and closed the limb hatch and sealed it with a turn of its lever. Then he backed into Odyssey, retrieved its hatch from the spot where he had tied it down on that Monday night and fitted it into place. If this hatch evidenced the same bulkiness it had four days ago, the limb could not be jettisoned, and the re-entry could not proceed as planned. Even if the hatch did seal, it would be a few minutes before the onboard pressure sensors would confirm that the seal was tight and the spacecraft wasn't leaking air. Naturally, without this confirmation, a safe re-entry would be impossible. Lovell looked at the hatch suspiciously, and then through its locking mechanism. The latches closed with a satisfying snap. Reaching the tunnel vent switch, Lovell bled the air out of the passageway and into space until the pressure read 2.8 pounds per square inch. Flipping the vent switch shut, he floated back to his seat. Is it sealed, Jim? Swigert asked. I hope so, Lovell said. With Lovell's weak reassurance, the command module pilot flipped several switches on his instrument panel and brought the oxygen system to life, feeding fresh O2 into the cockpit. For several seconds, he stared at his flow indicator. Oh no, Swigert groaned. What's wrong? Lovell and Hayes asked, practically in unison. Flow is high. It looks like we've got a leak. In mission control. John Aaron hunched over his e-com screen and spotted the oxygen rate at the same time Swigert did. Oh no, he groaned. What's wrong? Libergot Burton and Dumas asked, practically in unison. Flow is high. It looks like we've got a leak. Okay, Houston, we got an O2 flow high. Okay, uh, Jack, are you... Uh Well, we might be pressurizing a lot of the system that was not pressurized. Raj, I expect that's the case. Uh, let us check it. Okay, uh, take a good look at Kevin. As Swigert kept his eyes on his instruments, Aaron contacted his back room. He and his engineers discussed the source of the potential leak while the three other ECOMs standing around him talked aloud amongst themselves. Within minutes, Aaron believed he had the problem figured out. The limb operated at a slightly lower pressure than the command module. Over the past four days, with the hatches opened up and Odyssey shut off, it was Aquarius that determined the pressure in both ships. 
When the command module was powered up and its door was closed, its pressure sensors spotted that difference and the command module tried to pump the internal atmosphere up to what it thought it should be. In a few moments, Aaron calculated, the necessary air should have been added to the cockpit and the high flow rate would stop. Sit tight for another minute, Aaron told the people around him. I think we'll be all right. Forty seconds later, the numbers in the spacecraft and on ECOM's screen indeed began to stabilize. It's dropping now, John. Uh, Raj, we think you were just pressurizing the cabin up to the, that regulator's particular spec. With the oxygen flow stabilized, the crew asked for permission to go ahead and release the lunar module. Mine, can I proceed on and uh, kind of punch off early, or do you want me to punch off at exactly one hour? Uh, Jack, when you are comfortably ready to punch off, you can go ahead and do it. That was Jack Swigert uh, receiving uh, confirmation from the ground uh, from Joe Kerwin that uh, he can jettison the lunar module uh, at his convenience. Lovell and Swigert looked at the mission timer on their instrument panel. It was 141 hours and 26 minutes into the flight. Do it in four minutes, Swigert asked. Seems like a nice round figure, Lovell answered. Okay, Houston, uh, we'll punch off at uh, 141 plus 30. Okay, Jack, we copy and we concur. That was Jack Swigert uh, indicating that they plan to jettison the lunar module in uh, about three minutes from this time. Outside the command module's five windows, the astronauts could see nothing of Aquarius but its reflective silver roof plates just a few feet away from the glass of their portholes. Three and a half minutes elapsed. Thirty seconds to limb jettison, Swigert said. Ten seconds? Five? Swigert reached up to the instrument panel, ripped away his no note. Four, three, two, one, zero. The command module pilot flipped the toggle switch and all three crewmen heard a dull pop. In their windows, the silver roof of the lunar lander began to recede. As it did, its docking tunnel became visible, then its high-gain antenna. Slowly, the unbound Aquarius began a graceful forward somersault. Lovell stared as the face of the ship, its windows, its attitude control quads, rolled into view. He could see the forward hatch from which he and Hayes would have emerged after settling down in the dust of Frau Morrow. With the loss of the lunar lander, Apollo 13 was at last reduced to its irreducible essence. The spacecraft was now nothing more than an 11-foot-tall wingless pod heading toward a freefall through the fast-approaching atmosphere and a collision with the fast-growing ocean. Before that could happen, however, there was still another job for the crew to perform. And that job was to verify the capsule's alignment for re-entry. How do we stand for the moonset check? Hayes asked Lovell from the right side of the spacecraft. You ready for it? 
Lovell asked Swigert from the center. As soon as we hit nighttime, Swigert answered. The earthly nighttime Swigert spoke of was still some minutes away, but though the planet below was still brightly illuminated, Lovell, Swigert, and Hayes could see none of it. That was because Apollo 13's approach to the Earth was heat shield forward. Of course, this was necessary for the spacecraft to survive. The heat shield's ablative bottom would absorb all of the punishment of the sizzling hot plunge through the air. So, as the final hour of the mission ticked down, the astronauts found themselves backing blindly toward their planet in an approach that their instruments told them was bringing them closer and closer to the ocean below, but they could not verify it with their eyes. For several long minutes, the spacecraft continued this way until gradually it began to arc around the globe, passing over the twilight of Western Africa and Western Europe and then into the darkness of the Middle East. When the ship had dropped low enough and flown backward far enough, the lightless landmass began to spread out in front of it. Through their windows, the astronauts could at last see the great curved shadow that they knew was both destination and home. Hanging over it, tiny as a tablet, was the bright white gibbous moon. Now it was almost time to use the position of the moon to verify the capsule's attitude. And uh, Odyssey, uh, we're ready for you to uh, warm up the BMAG number twos at your uh, discretion, and we're curious whether the moon check attitude is, uh, is good. Over. The command module pilot glanced at his eight ball to confirm Odyssey's attitude and then shifted his gaze out the window, watching the moon slowly descend toward the dark horizon. As the spacecraft fell farther and the horizon climbed higher, the moon began to drop lower. Yeah, Joe, it's uh, coming down. I guess it's about 45 degrees now and uh, coming on down. Roger that. Down to about 38 degrees. Okay, Jack, sounds real good. In the center and right-hand seats, Lovell and Hayes watched the timer on the instrument panel as Swigert kept looking out the window. The moon dropped from 38 degrees to 35 to 20s to the high teens and the seconds until the predicted time of moonset that Jerry Bostick had calculated melted away until there were just 15 seconds to go. Got anything, Jack? Lovell asked. Nothing yet. Now? Negative. Now? Just three seconds left. Not yet, Swigert answered. Then, at precisely the instant the Fido in Houston had predicted, the moon dropped a fraction of a degree more and a tiny black nick appeared in its lower edge. Swigert turned to Lovell with a giant grin and said, Moonset. With re-entry attitude verified, Jim Lovell turned to look at the men on either side of him and smiled. Gentlemen, we're about to re-enter. I suggest you get ready for a ride. Unconsciously, the commander touched his shoulder belts and lap belts, tightening them slightly. Unconsciously, Swigert and Hayes joined him. Swigert contacted Mission Control and asked where the capsule was on the plot map board. Oh, on our, uh, our plot board up here, we can't hardly see how far out you are. Okay. I know all of us here want to think 
uh, all you guys down there for the very fine job you did. That's the firm, Joe. I tell you, we all had a good time doing it. Back in the spacecraft, the crew fell silent. And on the ground in Houston, a similar stillness fell over the control room. In four minutes, the leading edge of the command module would bite into the upper layer of the atmosphere. And, as the accelerating ship encountered the thickening air, friction would begin to build, generating temperatures of 5,000 degrees or more across the face of the heat shield. If the energy generated by Apollo 13's descent could be converted to electricity, it would equal 86,000 kilowatt hours enough to light up Los Angeles for a minute and a half. If it could be converted to kinetic energy, it could lift every man, woman, and child in the United States 10 inches off the ground. But aboard the spacecraft, the heat would have another effect. As temperatures rose, a dense ionization cloud would surround the ship, reducing communications to a hash of static lasting about four minutes. If radio contact was restored at the end of this time, the controllers on the ground would know that the heat shield was intact and the spacecraft had survived. If it wasn't, they would know that the crew had been consumed by flames. In mission control at the flight director station, Gene Krantz stood, lit a cigarette, and clicked on his controller's loop. Let's go around the horn once more before re-entry, he announced. Ecom, you go. Go flight, Aaron answered. Retro, go. Guidance, go. GNC, go flight. Capcom, go. Inco, go. Capcom, you can tell the crew they're ready for re-entry. As Flight Director Krantz went around the horn for the final go-no-go check for re-entry, he felt a sense of loneliness in the room. Mission Control was preparing to turn the crew loose. Once in blackout, they were on their own. No more help from Mission Control. No one watching over their shoulder. To Krantz and his team, this crew was special. They just could not lose them. Failure was not an option. Odyssey Houston, your disky is doing all the right things. The GNN is go, over. Okay, thank you. You have a good bedside manner. That's the nicest thing anybody's ever said. Capcom Joe Kerwin was an astronaut and a medical doctor. His bedside manner with the crew during the final hours of the flight was spectacular. He was coach, mentor, doctor, friend, and partner to the crew. At times, it seemed he was virtually on board the spacecraft, nudging the crew through its checklist. Odyssey Houston, over. Go ahead. Okay, we just had one last uh, time around the room, and everybody says you're looking great. Thank you. Odyssey Houston, over. Go ahead. Okay, LOS in uh, a minute or a minute and a half. Uh, at entry attitude, we'd like Omni Charlie. And welcome home, over. Thank you. In the 60 seconds that followed, Jack Swigert fixed his eyes out the left-hand window of the spacecraft. Fred Hayes fixed his out the right, and Jim Lovell peered through the center. Outside, a faint, faint shimmer of pink became visible, and as it did, Lovell could feel an equally faint ghost of gravity beginning to appear. 
The pink outside gave way to orange, and the suggestion of gravity gave way to a full G. Slowly, the orange turned to red, a red filled with tiny, fiery flakes from the heat shield, and the G-forces climbed to two, three, four, and peaked briefly at six. In Lovell's headset, there was only static as Apollo 13 fell into communications blackout. Salutations from the Lone Star State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 288 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13 Reentry. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners. Thank you for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 112 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. Today, we salute my moon emoji donors. These donors have supported the podcast for three years in a row and received the moon emoji next to their name on the donors page. Thank you very much, moon emoji donors, for your continued support. My sources for this episode were... Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, the NASA Apollo 13 Technical Air-to-Ground Voice Transcription, the Internet Archive, Wikipedia, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and the Johnson Space Center. Well, Apollo 13 is almost finished. Will the heat shield hold up as it falls through the atmosphere? Will the crew survive reentry? Find out next week on the Space Rocket History Podcast. What did you think of the O2 high flow alarm? For a minute or two, it was looking like the command module had a leak. But John Aaron and his team figured it out pretty quickly. The regulator set point in the command module was higher than the lunar module and the pump was activated to increase the pressure. It was a little scary at first. It seemed like another problem would have to be solved before the astronauts could come through the atmosphere. But, fortunately, it was nothing. Now, I mentioned that there was a gibbous moon, and I wanted to make sure everyone understood what that was. A gibbous moon is more than half illuminated, but less than a full moon. I hope that was clear. It was from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Moving on... We were pleased to receive seven donations to support the podcast over the past week. James P. donated at the Apollo level and earned his satellite emoji. Rich M. from Virginia donated at the Apollo level and earned his galaxy emoji. Chris I. from Canada donated at the Mercury level. Christopher L. donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Sugv K. from Norway donated at the Mercury level. Daniel D. from Vienna, Austria, donated at the Vostok level and earned his moon emoji. Vincent B. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. We are still at 216 Patreons with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. That is a negative two for the year so far, so we're working on that one. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 261 with a goal of reaching 600 before the year ends. 
For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. You may have noticed that we do not have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-supported. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to support. For the 261 of you who have donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. It is 3 inches in diameter, round, and it will stick to most refrigerators. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Lawrence Williams. Lawrence Williams, if you will email me mike at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I will try to get episode 289 up by next Thursday. So long for now.